Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Almighty Attitude. My parents had the uncanny ability to detect a bad attitude and were quite adept at quickly correcting it. Many Christians, unfortunately, could rightly be nicknamed as C.T. Studd called them humbugs. We are notorious for having bad attitudes, but what a change it would bring if we understood God's greatness and recognized that He has indeed imparted to us His almighty attitude. Please contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The almighty attitude. You guys have heard of a bad attitude. You've ever heard of someone having an attitude? Usually it's a negative connotation. However, there's such a thing as a good attitude. And obviously that's typically something we as parents talk with our kids about, of having a good attitude. And yet, the Bible actually deals with the concept of attitude quite extensively. It just doesn't always translate the word the same way we would. In the older translations, it's typically mind. It's a way that someone looks at life. An attitude is a framework of thought. And it's a strange thing to think that God has an attitude. Doesn't that sound like he's in a bad mood? He has an attitude. God has a very defined attitude, and that attitude is revealed in Scripture. And basically, the commission of Scripture is, and you ought to have the same attitude that God has. Well, to have the same attitude that God has, you need some help. First, you need to know that God has an attitude. Then you need to know what his attitude is. And then if you know what his attitude is, and then you just try and emulate it, and you're like, I can do that, you'll find that you can't have God's attitude without some serious help from God, the one who possesses the attitude in the first place. And so to have God's attitude, you need God. And so let's walk through. First of all, I want to introduce you to the almighty attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is what I grew up on. I I actually grew up on the NIV, and then I transferred to the NASB because of an inductive Bible study class when I was in my young 20s. And then spent most of my 20s memorizing the NASB. And so when it comes to the Bible and someone says, oh, is the word attitude in the Bible? Of course it is. And then I search the Bible. I can't find it. And so I had to find it in the NASB. It's like, no wonder. There it is. So have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So here's the old-fashioned version for it. Let this mind be in you. What a strange way of saying it. Let this mind be in you, as if it's coming from outside and it's being planted in us. And, of course, we could more simply say, well, that means you're just supposed to have this mind in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the almighty mind. We have the mind of Christ. Isn't that an odd statement? I don't know how many of you feel like you have the mind of the creator of the universe. Uh, Your IQ test may not have scored very high. And yet, what it says in Scripture is that if you are Christ's, in other words, you belong to Christ, you are found in Christ, then all that is Christ's belongs to you. So his eyes are your eyes. And now you can actually begin to see in this earth what he sees. His heart is your heart. So now what his affections are, you begin to have. And you actually have love for your neighbor. You begin to have love even for your enemies because he does. And his hands are your hands. His feet, your feet. Okay, brace yourselves for this one. His mind, your mind. 
You see, you are being replaced. All of the old you. There's an old Eric. There's an old you. However, that old you is crucified in Christ Jesus. When he went to the cross, your old man was crucified. However, if you have never come to the cross, if you've never come to Jesus, your old man is very much alive. But when you come to Christ, that old nature, that old mind, those old eyes, that old heart, that old hand, that old feet, that old feet, that was a funny way of saying it, those old feet, they are no more. And so no longer do you go where you used to go. No longer do you handle, this doesn't ball up into a fist and knock someone in the nose anymore. These eyes don't wander and look at things that they shouldn't. And this mind no longer behaves as it once did. It's a new mind. And it begins to think differently. It is renewed. It is changed. Because we are the body of Christ. You see, to be the body of Christ, you actually need to become the body of Christ. It's not just a concept that we go, oh, yeah, it's just a nice-sounding thing to be the body of Christ. When we become the body of Christ, his mind is our mind. The way he looks at everything, the way he reasons, the way he approaches every circumstance and situation is the way we do. Well, we're Christians. We have the mind of Christ. So here's our word for attitude, phroneo. Very simply, it would be the mindset or the way of looking at things. However, I'm going to start with a definition to help us. A mental lens through which one sees, reasons and decides. A perspective, a point of reason, a way of thinking. It's... The approach that someone has towards anything in life, there is an attitude behind it. And so, depending on your attitude, defines everything in your life. Because we could look at the same circumstances completely different, you and me. And, for instance, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Now, let's say you're thrown into the next cell. You've been falsely accused. You've been stripped from your home. They put your entire, all your bank accounts on lockdown. Your family, your wife and your children have nothing. And you've been thrown into prison. All you did was love Jesus. That's it. Yeah, you talked about him too. You're thrown into a prison cell. Next to you is Paul and Silas. They're in the prison cell adjacent. Now, how are you doing? What's your attitude in this situation? A lot of us would be grumbling, going, this stinks. God, why am I here? Why do I have to go through this? Why did you stick me here? And then you start to hear some songs. What? What's that? In the cell adjacent to you are Paul and Silas, and their attitude on the exact same circumstances are completely different. They're rejoicing. They're singing. There's a guard outside that needs to know about Jesus. Look, we have all these other prisoners around us that need to know. Great, we have a mission field right here. They have a different attitude. You see, attitude defines everything for you. The way you approach a circumstance defines the outcome of your soul. If you are looking at every circumstance through a dark, earthly lens, you will be miserable on this earth. And I just described the state of many of your souls. You have been miserable on this earth. However, the almighty attitude changes life on this earth. And suddenly, in the darkest of circumstances, you find yourself needing to get airborne because you have a different lens on the same circumstance. We're all stuck in this earth. We all have the miseries that come just with this life here. We're surrounded by human beings that are rather funny. They don't behave as they ought. They're a little messed up. We live in a dark age, a dark world. We have propensities that destroy our own souls and destroy the marriages we have, destroy our kids. 
We're not as we should be. We're all stuck in this earth. And we could either bemoan that fact or we could begin to look at it through an almighty lens. Huh. I'm here for a reason. And though life is full of challenges, what if I begin to look at each of those challenges as an opportunity? An opportunity to become stronger in each and every situation. Hmm. The almighty attitude. Freneo, a mental lens through which one sees reasons and decides. A perspective, a point of reason, a way of thinking. So we'll call these the almighty glasses. You stick on these glasses and they have a hue to them. So everything you have been seeing is black and white. And then you put on these almighty glasses and suddenly you have dimension. You can see beyond just the simple flat circumstances you have and you begin to see meaning. You begin to see possibility. You begin to see color in what everyone around you is only seeing black. And you begin to go, no, no, there's a nice shade of yellow over here. And they're like, I don't see that yellow. Well, try on these glasses. You see, these glasses are what the Bible refers to as faith. I believe that this is true. This is reality. And you stick on these glasses and you say, this is what God defines as reality. And I'm going to live according to what I'm seeing through these glasses. These glasses are the word of God. And when God says something, we say, and I believe it. And we stick on the shades. And we begin to see things with a different color. We begin to reason differently. Everyone else is bemoaning the fact and we are leaping for joy. And someone around us could say, something's wrong with you. We go, no, something's wrong with you. You're the one that needs the glasses. My life is great. The almighty glasses, reasoning from the vantage point of the mother eagle. When a mother eagle has a baby eaglet, she builds this King Kong-sized nest. It's just this huge mansion type of thing for a little eaglet. And it's cozy. It's all comfortable with the downy uh, part of the feathers. And the little baby eaglet is so cozy in her new life. And then one day, Mother Eagle knows that it's time for little baby eaglet to mature and to grow up because little baby eaglet is not meant to be a little baby forever. Little baby eaglet is meant to grow up to be like mother. And so one day, mother stirs up the nest and all the pinions are now sticking up and where it used to be cozy, now little baby eaglet can't find any comfort. Mother Eagle seems to have gone berserk because Mother Eagle is now hovering over the nest. You've seen a little hummingbird hover. What would it be like and what type of wind current would be created if an eagle hovered? But that's what they will do over their nest and create such a downward rush of air against little baby eaglet, against the the pointy feathers. And suddenly, baby eaglet is rather miserable. When you look at this situation from the lens of Mother Eagle, you know that you see something very different than from the lens of little baby eaglet? Most of us are stuck in the lens of baby eaglet. And we're looking up at God going, what are you doing? And God's hovering. And there's this downward pressure of wind upon our life. And we're like, this doesn't make any sense. And God says, could you put on these glasses? Could you look at this from another angle? Reasoning from the vantage point of the mother eagle. What if you get inside the mind of the mother eagle? What's the mother eagle saying? I love you too much to leave you here. You see, you must grow up. And I cannot have you grow up. And I can't help you grow up any other way. You see, if you remain in this comfort, you will never learn to fly. And if there is ever a situation or a storm that you need to rise above, you will not be able to do it. So I'm actually loving you right now. You know what is happening in baby eaglet's body when that pressure against 
her little eaglet body is taking place, when that downward pressure of wind is taking place, she is resisting it with her wings, and it is strengthening a muscle in both of her wings which will enable her to fly. And also, there's a lubricant, some kind of oil that secretes when there's that pressure. It secretes and lubricates the feathers so that little baby eaglet, because you know what's next? Mother eaglet knocks it out of the nest. Little baby eaglet is being made ready for something. Do you see life and its challenges through the lens of baby eaglet or through the lens of mother eagle? This current pressure upon you is working great benefit into your little eaglet body. Trials are opportunities through which God will make us stronger. Now, I know some of you are probably mad at my message already because you like to stew in your challenges. In fact, maybe you were complaining to a family member this morning, and now your family member is sort of looking over at you and nudging you. It's like, bad attitude? That's you. <laughs> you see, these trials are opportunities through which God will make us stronger. Suffering is a means by which God both purifies us and fortifies our soul. How many of us, when we're suffering, are going, oh, praise God, I'm going to be purified through this. I'm going to be fortified in my soul. I'm going to be stronger. Affliction is a secret catalyst which means it helps something along, to work unbreakability and unbendability into the soul. It says tribulation works patience. Patience is the ability for the soul to handle great difficulty for great lengths of time. How do you get it? Through tribulation, through difficulty, through affliction, through suffering. There's no other way to get it. Mother eagle needs to hover. However, mother eagle's hovering is not a means of punishment. It is a means of aid and abetment to your soul so that you can grow up and be strong for the calling you've received. However, if baby eaglet refuses to accept this and she hops out of the nest before the lubricant has taken place, before the muscles have been strengthened, how is baby eaglet doing in this life? Baby eaglet does not have the strength to handle and she has removed herself from the covering of mother eagle who knows what's best for her. Baby eaglet is vulnerable. An overview of the almighty attitude. This is just a cursory overlook uh, of the Bible on this point. This is just an attitude. Think about it. What if you thought with these scriptures in mind? In every circumstance, you just said, "Uh uh-huh. To him, God, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as a small dust of the balance. He sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all. The creator of the heavens and the earth, God of all the kingdoms of this earth. And before him all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And when he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Our Lord possesses all the greatness, all the power, all the glory, all the victory, all the majesty, for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is his. His is the kingdom, and he has exalted his head above all. God is big. A lot of us reason through the lens of a very small God. So we turn our life over to God, and the first trial or challenge we come to, we're like, God's not protecting me. I feel vulnerable. He's not looking out for me. Instead of recognizing God's in complete control, God knows what he's doing. You see, we're not reasoning from the lens of the Almighty. We're reasoning through the lens of the eaglet. And when you reason through the lens of the eaglet, oftentimes you can forsake God pretty quickly. Because you do not think big thoughts about God. You think big thoughts about you and your comfort. 
And when you are thinking big thoughts about you and your comfort, you oftentimes miss the fact that God's agenda for your life is a lot bigger than your comfort. God has you on this earth not to make you comfortable, but to use you as a demonstration for his glory. He has a calling upon each of our lives. Are we willing to be more than just nest sitters? Are we willing to be strengthened to be mighty eagles in this generation? You know that an eagle has strengthened its wings. It's a very unusual bird. It's a very strong bird. And when there's a storm in life, did you know that an eagle can actually go through the storm and soar above it? How many of you soar above storms and how many of you are soaring beneath storms? You still have a storm. Do you have storms in your life? Yes, I do. Are you above them or beneath them? An eagle is above them. You know what? If I could choose a location in a storm, I'd rather be above it. But most of us spend our life, we're still flapping our wings the best we know how, but we're beneath the storm and we're getting drenched by it. And God says, are you ready to have me grow you up? And we're like, I want to grow up, but I don't like this hovering thing. I want my comforts. I do not want you knocking me out of the nest. I don't care about strengthening that muscle in my wing. I do not care about the lubricant on my feathers. I just want to be above storms and have it my way. And he says, you can't have it that way. You want the best of me. You need my mind on these issues. You need to begin to reason and think my way, not your way. We'll call this the two-factor. Psalm 2, Philippians 2. Two of the best scriptures on attitude, but they seem contradictory. You see, the scripture in the New Testament says, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's in Philippians 2. It's talking about Jesus humbling himself. Jesus taking the lowest place. It says, this is the mind of Christ. Well, go to Psalm 2. And it doesn't sound the same. It sounds like it's saying something very different. So I'm going to read them both for you. The two-factor. The two chapter 2s, Psalm 2 and Philippians 2. The two seemingly contradictory attitudes. Is God schizophrenic? Is he not totally sure of which attitude he's going to have? The two essentials to unstoppable living. If you get these attitudes. By the way, this is just one attitude. God does not differ in his behavior. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same way he was in Psalm 2. is the same way he is in Philippians 2. The same way he is now if there was a book written and we could look at the chapter 2 of it. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And these are the two essentials to unstoppable living. The enemy wants to stop you in your forward progress. He sees you awakening to the gospel. He's not too happy about it. So he wants to leverage difficulty in your life to get you to complain to get you to murmur as a little eaglet, to get you to turn away and get out from the rushing winds of those hovering wings. I don't want this. I didn't sign up for this. How many of us have said that in our life? I didn't sign up for this. Are you sure about that? Did you read the Bible before you said yes? You see, the mother eagle hovers. And God promises that he's going to hover. And there's going to be wind upon your life, but that wind is not a bad thing. When you treat it as a bad thing, it becomes a very, very bad thing in your soul. When you treat it as a good thing, it becomes a very, very good thing in your soul. If you get the right attitude, you're unstoppable in this life. And no matter what the enemy throws at you, you go, oh, thank you. And then he brings something from over here, and he's like, you're not supposed to respond like that. You're supposed to get mad at it. You're supposed to grumble and complain. Like, why would I do that? Praise God. And you leap. You see, you have an almighty attitude. And when you handle life's challenges with his mindset, everything changes and the enemy goes down. 
So the two chapter twos, let's look at Psalm 2. By the way, I love Psalm 2. I did trim these down, otherwise this would become a very long message. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Oh, no! No, no! The kings of the earth are coming together and conspiring. The rulers of this earth are counseling. What are they doing? They're going to come against God. Oh, no, what's God going to do? Is he rubbing his hands together and fretting? What is the almighty attitude? You see, you're in a prison cell, and there's Paul and Silas over here. If the rulers of this earth, the kings of this earth, are taking their stand against you, how are you doing? How are you doing if you knew there was a conspiracy hatched to destroy you out there? And it was very, very powerful people that were a part of this conspiracy. Gulp. Oh, no. What's God's attitude? When you have the attitude of Christ, what is his attitude? you know who the Lord's anointed is? Do you know who is being described in this exact scripture? He, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. I like that. So next, chapter 2, Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind, there's our attitude, our phroneo, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He's equal with God. It's not a robbery. It's not a crime. He's equal with God. But though he's equal with God, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I just described two different attitudes. One, which holds certain things in absolute contempt, and derision, which, by the way, for most of us would be considered a little bit of a cocky attitude, a little arrogant. I mean, you don't just have that. Are the rulers, the kings of the earth? He laughs. He holds them in derision. And that is actually the attitude of God towards the powers of darkness. If you're going to adopt the God attitude, isn't it an interesting thought to think of holding in derision and laughing at all the powers of darkness. That's what he does. And who are you? Well, let me ask it this way. What's your location? So you're in the one who's holding in derision and laughing at all the rulers of this earth that would take their stand against him. That's where you're located. And who's inside of you? Jesus Christ, the very one who's laughing and holding them in derision, is inside of you doing a little belly laugh. Why aren't you laughing? Why aren't you holding them in derision? You see, you're one of the saints of God. You're a Christian. So, Philippians 2 has a completely different attitude. However, look at how it works. God starts out with a very clear sense of his position. Jesus knows that he's God. Jesus knows that he's the exalted one. He's very confident in his position. If you are not first confident in your position... You can't follow the mind of Christ. You must know his position, and you must know your position in him. 
And when you know that, guess what? You can take the lowest place in this earth and not whine a bit. You can be thrown into a prison cell and not whine a bit. What's the end of the story in Philippians 2? He's highly exalted. You see, all will be made straight. You are on assignment here. You are on assignment in a world that hates Jesus Christ. However, you know his position and you know he wins. And you are not itching for the glory for yourself. You want him to be seen. When you know your position and you have the attitude of Christ holding all darkness in derision, knowing his exalted position, he sits at the right hand of the Almighty. And then you say, and I'm in him. And all things are under his feet. Therefore, all things are under my feet. And therefore, I will remove my outer garment, wrap a towel around my waist, and I will bend and serve the people around me. And whatever happens to me, I know my position. And I know the end. The end is not just me being mocked, me being spat upon, me being ridiculed and crucified. The end is I'm raised up with him. No downside here. You see, both attitudes work together. The first attitude gives you the strength to follow in the fulfillment of that second attitude, which is to become the servant of all. The two seemingly contradictory attitudes. What condescension, what wrath, what judgment. When we look at Psalm 2, I mean, this is what, I didn't read the whole thing, but it is one intense chapter. God just has no party to darkness. He holds it in derision. It, look, this first attitude is a hostility. It's a derision, a snubbing of the Almighty nose at all things proud and debased, a laughing at the smallness of the threat, a mockery of the darkness, and a full assurance in the triumph, sovereignty, and preeminence of the light. But look at this second attitude. What humility, what love, what grace. A humbling, a bending, a giving, a love so great and an affection so strong that the Almighty is moved to remove his robe of glory enduring the afflictions of the cross on our behalf in order that he might save us. So here's the attitude. God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Isn't that a great enunciation of the almighty attitude? He resists the proud. That's God's attitude. He resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Can you think of a better description of Jesus Christ when he was here, when the Pharisees came up? What did he do? He wasn't just Mr. Nice Guy to everyone. I think he called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed sepulchers. By the way, if you're called a whitewashed tomb, that's not a compliment. It means you look good on the outside, but on the inside is death and decay, and it stinks. That's what he was saying. Oh, you don't say that to the Pharisees. He did. He resisted the proud. This is the attitude of God, but he gives grace unto the humble. The two essentials to unstoppable living. If you know your almighty position, then you can obey boldly without fear and nothing can stop you from fulfilling your God-given assignment. So first, let's look at this from the lens of Jesus Christ. If he knows his position, that he's the son of God, that he has been sent of the Father, that he is the Messiah, if he knows his almighty position, it's not robbery to be equal with God, this is no crime, then he can obey boldly. Without fear, and nothing can stop him from fulfilling his God-given assignment. He knows his position, he knows God's commission, and he knows nothing can stop God. And as a result, he's perfectly confident taking the lowest position, fulfilling the calling he's received. How about you? If you know your almighty position, what's your position? You're in Christ. Do you know your position? Do you know that he is a strong tower around you? If it can't get through Christ, it can't get to you. How about lust? Did lust get through Christ? 
No, he was without sin. No guile was found in his mouth. How about fear? No, he didn't struggle with the same things we do. He was impenetrable. And guess who you're in? You're in the impenetrable shield. You rest and live in the Almighty. Do you know your position? Because if you know your position, you become very bold in this life. If you know your position, you do not fear anything but him. If you know your position, you know that nothing can stop you from fulfilling your God-given assignment. Paul says, I'm called to stand before Caesar. So he's in a boat, and the boat's looking like it's going to sink. No, 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 it can't sink because I'm called to stand before Caesar. You see, Paul reasons from a bigger attitude. He doesn't give way to fear. He stands resolute and says, oh, watch what God will do. I have to stand before Caesar. I have a calling. Hey, guys, don't you have a calling? Don't you know this? If you are secure in Jesus Christ, you know that he will carry you to the end. God's thoughts. What does God think? What, what would be a thought that God would have? What is his perception even of himself? Is he a little insecure? No. I am that I am. You see, I've always been this way and I always will be this way. I just am. You see, no one created me. I am. You want assurance in this life? Go to him. He's very assured. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's the I am. That's his proper name. Isn't that a fascinating thought? That's his proper name. So you call me Eric and we call him I am that I am. It's a little strange, but that's why we say Jehovah or Yahweh. So what's the believer's thoughts? If you're going to correct your thinking, you do not declare that you are the I am. That's not correct thinking. He is the I am and you are not him. However, what does the believer think? He is that he is and I am in him. And he is in me. What does that lead you to as far as the rest of your conclusions? If you start with the premise that, wait a minute, I may not be God, but I'm in God. And God is in me. Watch out, world. Do you know who you are in? Do you understand who is in you and enabling you to live this life? Hasn't anyone ever told you? Hasn't anyone ever given you the gospel to acquaint you? with the true attitude of the believer? The importance of an almighty attitude. If you reason small, you live small. If you think of God as weak, you will be intimidated by the bluff of the enemy. At the cross, the devil's head was crushed, which means his authority was crushed. You see, he doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to know that Jesus Christ has made a way for you to enter into him as a strong tower. He doesn't want you to know these things. He does not want you to think the way a heaven-born saint of God should be thinking. And so he's going to do whatever he can to make sure that you think very small thoughts of your God. If you think small thoughts of God, you're going to live a small life. And guess what? You're going to think big thoughts of the devil. You're going to think big thoughts about something. Either God or the devil, or you. And if you're thinking big thoughts about yourself or about the devil, you're sunk. But if you learn to have the almighty mind and say, he is that he is, and I am in him, and he is in me, suddenly life begins to work. If you don't have confidence in God's strength, then you will falter when the enemy boasts his strength. The theme of this entire week is this for me. We cannot be reasoning 
from a position of weakness. We must reason from a position of strength. You see, and I think it's the next slide. Yes, the lamb and the wolf pack. Attitude is everything. So wolf pack over here. And wolves are snarling. Their saliva is you know, dangling from their fangs. They see some sheep. By the way, we're the sheep. And we're over here in a little cluster. And we're not looking too impressive. And so what does the wolf tell us? The wolf says, you're small. You're nothing but a fluffy, slow thing. And when I'm ready to devour you, I'm going to bring you know, a little pot, put you in it, put a little seasoning in it. You're my dinner. And how can you even argue? Look at the wolf. He's built to munch on little sheep. He's like just an instrument of death. No! Okay, so remember the reasoning from baby eaglets, position or from mother eagle? How do you reason? Okay, this could be lust. This could be fear, anxiety. This could be threats. This could be foreboding and paranoia of bad things happening to you. Oh, no. But what if this happened? All of this junk over here that is not coming from God, but is hounding your soul, you have to learn to reason from a position of strength and not a position of weakness. And you could say, Eric, you just described me as a sheep surrounded by wolves. How can I not reason from a position of weakness? So let's just evaluate. So this is sheep mentality. All right. Let's take inventory of my strength. I have a nice fluffy wool barrier, so it'll take a little bit of time before the wolf's fangs can truly reach my flesh. And I think that's it. <laughs> a sheep is slow. A sheep has no fight in it. I mean, you don't see a sheep going. <sighs> and so as a result, we are, all we are is just a meal on four legs. We're doomed. And so what do we think? I'm doomed. And the enemy, all he has to say is, yep, I'm after you. I'm coming to get you. And what do we say? I'm doomed. And we give way to fear, to anxiety, to fretting, to foreboding the worst. We give way to everything of darkness. We are suddenly considering the worst and we begin to despair. We enter into a deep depression. This is where all that comes from. It comes from reasoning from a sheep mentality instead of a higher mentality. Now imagine, a sheep has something going for it that for whatever reason it's not figuring in to its thinking. Imagine some other sheep comes up and says, hey, why are you so low in your thinking? Don't you know who stands right by us here? Huh? He looks up, there's a shepherd there. You see, I know the wolves are stronger than us as sheep, but don't we remember whose shadow we rest in? Don't we remember that we have someone looking out for us? Have you ever seen that shepherd's rod? That thing is thick. Could you just imagine it crushing the skull of one of those wolves when he comes after you? Think it. Because that's what happened at the cross. That wood struck the head of the serpent. Crushed it. His authority is no more. He's all bluff and boast. But when you believe it, it gives it power in your life. And you begin to be crippled by these fears. You do not reason from a mere sheep mentality. Oh, and look at your own inventory of strength. That's not how we function as Christians. We look up and we look at his strength. So, oh, 
Good physique. Strong right bicep. We reason from his strength. Big, strong rod. How about this one? He's already crushed the head of all the wolves. And the, and the, sh the shepherd goes, just take a look. We look out there, all the wolves are dead. Why was I fearing that? We laugh and we hold it in derision. We are not vulnerable as the devil would tell us we are vulnerable. We are believers. We are firmly grafted into the strength, the power, the might of Jesus Christ. Spiritual intimidation. The results of forgetting the bigness of your God. Some of you this very week have been spiritually intimidated. I don't exactly know how to describe this. I can give illustration of it, but it's a subtle work of the enemy. Because you can believe everything I've said so far. You can know it to be true. However, you've been a pushover this week. You can have certain areas of your life where you're very strong. It's like, yeah, God will take care of me there. Uh -huh. God will take care of me. And then you have this other spot over here. And the enemy keeps playing upon it. And you just feel so vulnerable, so weak. And fear is just cascading in from that one port. It's not coming in from over here and over here. And so you're, you keep looking at it going, God, I'm still doing good. I'm not doing that. Yeah, but you're doing this. And you're allowing the enemy to intimidate you. The enemy wants to stop your forward progression. He does not want you to continue. He wants to bluff you into passivity. He does not want you to live out of a position of strength. He wants you to live out of a position of weakness. He says, you're just a sheep. And you could very quickly agree and go, you're right. But this weak sheep has a shepherd. He said, you can agree with him right away. Yeah, I am weak. Thanks for pointing that out. That helps. I noticed you forgot to mention that I have a shepherd. So I'm going to help you out by reminding you that I dwell in the shelter of that shepherd. I am in his shadow. And though a thousand will fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, that danger will not come near me. No plague will come nigh my dwelling. Nothing can by any means hurt me. Uh, just wanted to remind you of that, devil. Just in case you'd forgotten. I know my position. But spiritual intimidation has to do with the enemy slowly eroding our confidences. We don't know that it's happening. Little subtle things happen. Little stings. Like, for instance, you've never been afraid of a bumblebee. And suddenly you're just minding your own business, reading a book on the back lawn on a blanket, and a little bee comes in and stings you. By the way, it wasn't even that painful. It was a little sting. However, that little sting can plague you for the rest of your life if you don't handle it right. For the rest of your life, you go outside or you don't even want to go outside. You never even want to lay on a blanket for fear that a bee might come along. That is the enemy's game. That's how he works. It's, it's a technique of linking events. He will take this event, link it to this one, and try and create a fear connection. This may happen next. And so as a result, we're being intimidated into silence. And no longer do we go back in the nice outdoors and lay on our blanket and read a book because we might get another sting. Have you ever thought about the fact that that sting was no big deal? Is that the best the enemy can do? Take a thousand of them if necessary. I remember one of the statements by a man named Joshua Giovanello. He was a Waldensian. This is you know, five, six hundred years ago. His wife and uh, son were brutally killed because of their stand for Jesus Christ. Actually, you could say it this way, for his stand for Jesus Christ. And he was being hunted down in the Italian Alps, and they gave a threat to him. And they said, if we catch you, Mr. Giovanello, 
we will give you such tortures that no human has ever experienced before. And they described him in great detail. This was his response. First of all, he's basically saying, I will not be intimidated. He said, 10,000 deaths of such a kind would be too few for me to express my love to Jesus Christ. How are you responding to the threats? Because, by the way, I have a hunch your threats are not quite as big as Joshua Giovanello's. Ignatius was told he was going to be fed to the lions the next morning. You know what he's supposed to do? He's, going to, he's supposed to be struck with terror. This is the man who was discipled by the Apostle John. How did he respond when he was told he was going to be fed to the lions? He, he celebrated it. He rejoiced. He says, my salvation has finally come. And he referred to the lions as his friends. For they were the ones that were going to lead him into the presence of Jesus Christ. Who thinks that way? A Christian thinks that way. So spiritual intimidation. Installing mental hazard signs. One of the best ways to describe this is how I handle restaurants. I go to a restaurant and I order a meal. And if I have a bad experience or the food isn't that good, I actually stick a hazard sign in my mind somewhere. I I don't even know how it works. But there's a little, you know, just kink, little sign, doot, in there. And I could totally forget about it in a, you know, it's not a conscious thing. But then Leslie says something, how about we go back to that one restaurant? And I have quite a few of these that fall into this category. And I go, I, uh, I, have, a, I have a little thing in my head that says that wasn't good last time. And she's like, I don't remember that. I go, uh, I do. When I put that little sign in there, it comes up when this, this conversation happens. It's just a strange thing, okay? And that, but that's what we do in all sorts of areas in our life. Okay, there's things that we've done in the past where there was a bad experience. There was a little pain over here. We suffered some loss. We were made fun of. I don't know what it was. There was discomfort at some level. As a result, we've established what we could call a mental hazard sign. It's like, don't go here. Oh, no. And next time you get close to this, don't try and go here, Eric. You don't ever want to go through that again. You know what I would like us to do is go through, if it was possible, the Spirit of God search us for all our inventory of hazard signs and pull them up. You know how that can affect you? For instance, even at a restaurant level, imagine that God wants me to go to a restaurant where I have a little hazard sign. It might not have had the best roast beef. But guess what? There might be someone there that needs to hear about Jesus Christ. Am I going to let a hazard sign hinder me from obedience to Jesus Christ? These hazard signs are not being put there by Jesus Christ. I do not mean you should go to bad restaurants just because, you know, that's, a why, that's more spiritual to do. I played soccer when I was growing up, and I think it was at least two concussions that I had, maybe three. I was somewhat of a loud mouth on the field. I'd steal the ball from someone and say, ha and sort of make fun of the other team. By the way, if you are an athlete, don't do that. No one ever trained me that that was a bad thing. Uh, my teammates loved it. They thought it was hilarious because I was always cracking jokes as I was running around the field. But the other team would conspire to kill me. <laughs> so when I would go up for headballs, this one time I was going up for a headball and someone karate chopped me. That's the best description I have because I didn't see it. Karate chopped me in some spot behind the ear, literally came up and did some weird thing to me and I was immediately out. I mean, just knocked out. And I had a concussion that night. And then it happened again. I don't remember the exact circumstances. It may have happened three times. I can't really remember, which goes with the concussion thing. <laughs> but what's weird is I went to college to play soccer, and I had one huge deficit. And that is when the ball was coming across the middle in a certain way where the soccer player needs to go up and head the ball, 
I would pause and I wouldn't go. The coach was like, Looney, what are you doing out there? And how do you explain? I have a mental hazard sign. <laughs> you see, when I go up for that ball, someone may karate chop me. This is a weird thing, but it's a form of intimidation. And if you begin to establish these hazard signs, you'll find that you are not effective in the moment that you're most needed. And in life, this is just how it works. We will find ourselves cowering for the most bizarre reasons. How dangerous is it to actually jump up and head a ball? Not that big of a deal. However, there's this coating of self-protection. And if you don't recognize these hazard signs, you will find yourself cowering. Beware ever leaving the country again. Leslie and I, when we first started our ministry, we had this tour to Australia. And then I think we went to Canada right after that. And when we would leave, we, basically all our administrative staff, just to make the tour work, had to come with us because we didn't have a very big staff. And when we left, our entire world in the American side would fall apart. There was no communication. No one was responding to, I don't know if we had email. I'm guessing we had email back then. It was sort of the ancient days. It's the way I feel. However, there was no proper communication, and we would have events cancel, and nothing was working. And I remember when we got the next invite to go international, I was like, no way. I'm not going to have that happen again. As if leaving to travel and speak internationally always has to lead to that. But the enemy linked it, and as a result, there was a mental hazard sign, and I found myself unwilling. I remember there was this whole tour in Brazil that they tried to get us to go to for years Every year, they'd make a new appeal. We have so many churches that want to have you guys come in. We're like, nope, mental hazard sign. Bad things happen when the looties leave town. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Beware ever praying like that again. I don't know how to even articulate this one, but I've had certain degrees or levels of givenness in prayer. And I have a mental hazard sign that God was putting his finger on again this week. But there was something I did, it was about five, six years ago, and it was a givenness at a level I had never given myself before. And I made a commitment, and I have never experienced so much difficulty in my life. And I've associated, I've linked it all with what I did in that season in givenness to prayer. And I haven't even recognized it, but God has begun to sort of pull some things away, and I find myself going like this, like, whoa, what, what what are you asking me to do, God? That reminds me of something. It's like, it reminds you of what? I don't know, but I have a mental hazard sign here. You see, mental hazard signs have to go. My two conversations with the devil, I know this sounds very strange. I've had two negotiations with the devil, and I know the students in here have probably heard this story. And I, I don't go and talk to the devil. However, I have two different situations where I would say he came to me. And we had somewhat of a discussion, not a very long one. But the first one was this. We had just started our ministry. Every time we would travel, Leslie would get sick. Some of the most bizarre things were happening to us. I mean, my wife was under massive attack. And every time, like, I would even leave the room, someone would sneak out of the shadows and just verbally abuse her. It's the weirdest season of our life. And I was so burdened. I'm like, God, I didn't... I cannot keep doing this if my wife's going to be harmed. Harm me! I kept blaming it on God. I didn't see any spiritual battle that the devil had a design to try and subvert what God was doing. Couldn't see that. And so, basically, this message came to me, and it was this. Let go of this message, Eric, and I'll let go of you. And I remember, I thought, 
It's a pretty good deal. I'm sick and tired of this difficulty. I can't handle this, the classic line. I didn't sign up for this. And so I sat down with Leslie's parents, and we were going to make the announcement that we were transitioning out of ministry. This is just out of control. It's about four years in. We've been doing it for around 19 now. So you probably know that something's going to happen in this conversation. But we're sitting there talking with uh, Leslie's parents, and I said, yeah, and I really felt the devil has sort of given me an, an opening, an option, that if I give up this message, that he'll let go of us, and I just can't handle this anymore. I can't handle this constant attack, which, by the way, is nothing compared to what I get now. And this is what Leslie's mom said. Eric, he's lying to you. He said he will not stop until he kills you. And so I stood, oh, I think she said, you know too much. He will not stop until he kills you. So I stood up in the living room and I go, we are not stopping. (laughs) The second time was Ellerslie at the end of a year and a half of of teaching. So Ellerslie had been going for maybe two, two and a half years. I don't know, because we started before in this, this campus before we actually had our first students. We've been going for a while. And we had, our first thing was Operation Establishment. I, I don't remember we had a name for it, but Operation Get on Our Feet. It was a very, very difficult thing. Everything that's happening here at LSD is absolutely supernatural. It is extraordinary. It's an amazing story. So we went through that establishment season, which was very, very difficult. And our feet were finally under us. It's like this thing worked. Whoa, it worked. And this is when the enemy comes in. And he had sort of a mocking chuckle. Like, ah, well done. Well done, Ludie. Well done. Have to admit, you got me on this one. I tried some really serious attacks on you, and you made it through. Well done. Now let's deal. Ludie, you stop right here. You take another step forward. You keep pressing the ship forward. I'm going to bring all hell against you. However, if you just stop right here, and if you stay in this little zone that you've gained, and mind your own business, I'll let you be. Sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? I don't like havoc. I don't like harassment any more than you do. However, what's the right answer? If you reason from a little sheep perspective, what would you say when the wolves say, we'll let you be? Or do you say, it has nothing to do with your decision, I'm coming after you. The devil isn't the one concocting the deals. We're coming. We're marching on the gates of hell. And they shall not prevail against us, little sheep. Why? Because we're clothed in the Almighty. We're going to battle. We're not the ones that are the cowards. We're the ones on the offensive. Stop right there. We'll call it even. If you don't progress from here, I'll let you be. But if you keep progressing, all hell will break loose on your life. There was a family down the road here. I remember it was first or second semester of Ellerslie that really wanted to give their lives wholly and fully to Jesus Christ. However, they were really struggling. And their statement was, every time we've ever taken a step in that direction, all hell has broken loose against us. That's called spiritual intimidation. We as the body of Christ need to know the almighty attitude. We need to have it, and we need to operate in it. Fear. It's the great demonic ploy. 
stop right there or else. Aren't you afraid of that or else? What's he going to do? I don't like the sound of that. Or else. Or else what? Have you ever thought of saying that? Or else what? You're going to take down Jesus? <laughs> the noise of Sanballat. So let's go back to the days of Nehemiah. Nehemiah got the or else. Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem the Arabian weren't very happy about the... I don't blame you for booing. That's good. Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, and all the enemies of Israel were basically saying, you better stop now, otherwise we're bringing a mighty army against you, and we will devastate you. Nehemiah, what I love about Nehemiah, is just shrugged his shoulders and said, you're going to have to fight God. We're building this wall. This is our assignment. You can't stop us. They came, what, nine different times, nine different attacks, nine different ploys to try and stop the building of that wall. Nehemiah had a whole bunch of rabble. He had men you know, and women putting brick upon brick. They have entire armies, nations surrounding them that could not stop them. They had all sorts of threats. They made fun of the strength of the wall. There's no strength in that wall. At any time, I could come and knock it down. Even a fox could knock down that wall. They tried everything. Do you know your position? Stay in it. The noise of Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the king of the Syrians in the days of Hezekiah. Sennacherib has taken 47 of the 48 strongholds in Judah. There is one stronghold left, and Hezekiah and all the people are stuck in it. It's Jerusalem. And Sennacherib has surrounded it with a minimum of 180,000 soldiers, armed and dangerous. And Sennacherib is boasting, saying, you might as well give up. You cannot fight against us. You know that Syria had been in control of that entire region for 100 straight years. No one had ever defeated Syria over a 100-year period. You know what Sennacherib means? Sin. That's what it means. Sin boasts and has all its noise, and you're stuck in Jerusalem. What's your job? To fight? No, to believe. You know what God says? You don't even need to lift a finger. I'll destroy him. You know what happened? 180,000 lay dead. 180,000 slain by God himself. What's your situation? Do you know what the cross accomplished? He says, in Jerusalem, believe. I've done it. Your job isn't to fight sin. Your job isn't to cripple sin. Your job is to believe that I have crushed it. Your job is to trust me to do my work as God. You see, you're not the shepherd. You're the sheep. Know your position, but you need to know his position. You need to know your position in his shadow. The noise of the Anakim. What? There's no boo? <laughs> These are the three giants on the mountain of giants in the land of promise, the land that God gave to his people. He says, take that land. However, what was the terrifying thing that lay in that land? These three giants. The Anakim. Oh, no! You know, God was not terrified by the Anakim. However, all Israel was, just like we are over sin. Most men in here do not even believe that lust can be overcome. We have seen its legendary power for hundreds of years, and no one has ever been able to stand up against it. The Anakim had ruled and reigned even five years after the conquest in Canaan with Joshua. Did you know the Anakim still were on top of um, Mount Hebron? 
still there. Five years after they'd crossed the Jordan. And that's when Caleb came up to Joshua and said, Moses promised me that mountain. And Joshua was sort of looking at this old man named Caleb going, uh, you're rather old. You're thinking of taking on the Anakim? He says, there'll be nothing. You know that it's, all it says in Scripture is that Caleb expelled them thence? <laughs> Talk about a story that needs a little more detail. <laughs> the noise of Goliath. He boasts in the valley of Elah and all Israel trembles. Are you trembling? Do you have the almighty attitude? Who had the almighty attitude? Little David. You see, a little shepherd boy, a little sheep can stand against a Goliath. You just need to have the almighty attitude. The noise of the Syrian army. Uh, they do deserve a boo. This is the days of Elisha. They are surrounding Elisha. I think this was last week's message. And there's a whole army, a mighty host, and there's Elisha and his servant. And the servant is like, uh, alas, master, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, well, fear not. Uh, don't you see them? Lord, open my servant's eyes that he would see. And suddenly the servant sees a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding them. And in one word, you know that Elisha spoke and the entire army was blinded? Who has the almighty attitude? If you reason from the position of the sheep or the little baby eaglet, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be one, two against countless thousands. We're dead. No, you don't reason that way. Elisha didn't reason that way for one second. He says, fear not. Don't you see the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire? Do you, do you not know the power of our God? The noise at the cross. Don't boo. <laughs> the noise at the cross. Could you imagine what it would be like hearing all the mockery, all the revilement, all the spitting, all the curses, and then to not hear any response from God? There's a lot of noise. It's a cacophony of devilish voices. There's a lot of noise, and what will that noise do? It'll intimidate you. You see, there's a lot of noise that says, your Messiah has no power. Look at that. Is that the one you're going to serve? Is that the one you're going to follow? Is that the one you're going to claim as your king? Ha! Are you willing to, in that very moment, walk up to the foot of the cross and say, yes? And they mock you even louder. They prepare a cross for you as well. Do you know the power of that one? Do you know his position? Do you know what he's accomplishing in that moment? He is devastating all the host of hell, all the powers of darkness, all sin, all death, destroyed, annihilated. Do you see it? Or are you reasoning as one of the crowd? The noise in Christian history. You ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Gulp. Ah. Uh. God. And what does the devil say? You're next. However, read the stories afresh. These men are singing. These men are rejoicing. Wait a minute. There's no pall of depression or oppression. This is victory upon victory upon victory. They have the almighty mind, and when they are humbling themselves even to death, even the death of a cross, they are being exalted in the life of Jesus. The glory of God is being made manifest. You see, there's a lot of noise from Christian history that says, beware. And you say, of what? Of nearness and intimacy with Jesus Christ? Of triumph and glory? No. I look forward to it. We anticipate 
the difficulties. The difficulties are the catalyst that bring about a greater glory, a greater understanding, a greater closeness, a greater intimacy with the Most High God. We call the lions our friends. Reasoning from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. Forging an almighty attitude. Here's the construct, if we could say the ingredients of an almighty attitude. Do you know the invitation? Jesus Christ has come, and he has created what is known in Scripture as a way. A way to the Father, a way to salvation, a way to rescue. A way away from these wolves, a way from their cacophony, their mockery. There's a way. However, some of us don't know that we are invited. We may even know that there is a way, and others have found it, and they are full of joy, and they are full of such strength. But we don't know that that invitation is for us. Do you know the invitation? One of the simple ways I say it is if you want Jesus, if you want to be rescued by Jesus, that's the invitation. You know how many people don't want to be rescued? For some reason, you do. That's the invitation. It's inscribed upon your heart. He says, and I want you first. You see, if you're desiring Jesus, if you're designed to be rescued by Jesus, he desired you first. And he's writing that invitation upon the very tablet of your heart saying, yes, you. Yes, you. Do you know that the invite is for you? When you begin to say yes to that, something dramatic begins to shift in your life. I do believe it's for me. And then what's the next question? Well, then accept it. Accept the invitation. The door is open to find the shelter of the Most High God. You've been a sheep trying to take on the wolf pack by yourself, and you've been losing. I don't blame you for wanting to be near the shepherd's leg. That's where we all go. If you are interested in the shepherd's leg and being found in the shelter of the Most High, then go. Accept the invitation. You immediately are found in that shelter. Do you know that God is not capricious, which means he doesn't mess with you. He's not fooling you. He's not mocking you, saying he's going to write an invitation on your heart, give you a desire for him, and then say, oh, just joking. I think when I was growing up, it was psych. It's one of the most irritating terms. Some of you just went back in a flash into your junior high years. God does not do that to us. He is not capricious. When he gives an invitation, he cannot lie. He is not joking about these things. He is dead serious. If you have an invitation, it's from the Almighty. You show him honor by saying yes. Do you know that if you believe that that means that you are clothed in him? When you turn to Jesus and you accept the invitation, did you know that his life becomes a covering for you? His perfection becomes your perfection because you can't enter the holy place of God without being perfect. His righteousness becomes your righteousness because you have to be perfectly righteous to stand before the judgment of God. His holiness, your holiness. He wraps you in his life and he's victorious. He's triumphant. He's alive. And now suddenly you are wrapped in eternal life. If you are in him, did you know that that means you have access to all that he is? You know that he has done a great work? And outside of Jesus, just staring at him as a historical figure, you don't have access to that work? You know that he died upon a cross and accomplished some very real, powerful, amazing things? However, you can just stare back in the history books and go, oh, good for him. However, when you're in him, did you know that you share in his work, all his accomplishment, all his labor 
becomes yours. He went to the cross, and guess what? If you're in him, you go to the cross. You know that the old man, your old man, is crucified at that cross? And if you're in him, you get to enjoy the benefits of that? Your old man is dead. When you are in him, that's a fact. And guess what? If you're in him, when he was buried, you were buried. What does that mean? That means your old behavior is no longer seen. It's buried, put underground. You know that if you're in him, when he rose from the dead, you rise from the dead? And you have newness of life in Christ Jesus? You know that if you're in him, that means you go where he goes, and he went to the right hand of the Father? And you know what it says in Ephesians? We are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know that all things are under his feet? And if all things are under his feet and you're in him, what does that mean for you? That means that all things are under your feet. Has anyone ever told us this? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are in him, did you know that that means you have access to all that he is? He has peace. He has love. He has joy. And you know that there's no hindrance to it? You know what it says in Galatians when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit? It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know what the next line is? And against these things there is no law. It's like God is saying, you know, there's no law, there's no prohibition. You want love? Have at it. As much as you desire. Joy? I got a whole treasure trove of it here for you. Oh, you've been wanting peace? You can't find it in the world, but you can find it here in me. You see, if you're in Christ, you have access to all that he is, and he's the prince of peace. He's love itself. The fullness of joy has been made available to us in Christ Jesus. Boy, who would turn that down? Do you know what belongs to him? Do you know where he dwells? Do you know where he sits? Do you know what his seated position means to you? You see, if you know these things, you're gaining the almighty mind. You're gaining the almighty attitude. I do know where he sits. Do you know where you sit? Well, that would mean that I'm in him. So when I'm in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, he's at the right hand. Where does that put me? Gulp. I'm in Christ at the right hand of the Father. I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus to the very Father. You know Jesus is one with the Father and we're one with Jesus? You know that Jesus is in the Father and the Father's in him and we're in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father? Where does that put us? We're not just close. We're very close. We've been brought to the Father. And Jesus is in us, but the Father's in Jesus, which means the Father is also in us by the Spirit. Jesus has brought us to the Father and brought the Father to us. What a, what a treasure. It's called euangelion, the good news. But good is such a small, diminished word to describe what this is. The almighty attitude of the believer. Buckle seatbelts. Do you know that though you are weak, he will make you strong? We are to be super conquering. What it says is we are more than conquerors. Alexander the Great and Napoleon were conquerors. We're more than that. What is more than that? We were sheep. We're little eaglets. You're more than conquerors is what the Bible says. Do you know that his authority is now your authority? We are bequeathed all power and authority. We are seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly position of power and authority. We are given power over all the power of the enemy to tread upon their high places. Do you know that you are immovable and invincible? We are able to repel all the fiery darts of the enemy. This is what it says in Scripture. Able to tread on lions, adders, serpents, scorpions, and dragons. I haven't seen many dragons. But you can trample on them if you find one. <laughs> able to drink poison and be unharmed. A thousand shall fall at our side and ten thousand at our right hand, but it shall not come near us. There shall not a hair of our head perish. 
Jesus gives unto us eternal life, and we shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck us out of his hand. And nothing shall by any means hurt us. You need to get the notes to this and study each of these scriptures. This is the fact of God. This is the lens that we stick on. This is how we reason. Fear has no position in our life when we live in alignment with reality. Do you know that you are to be fearless? The Lord is our light and our salvation, so whom shall we fear? The Lord is the strength of our life, so of whom shall we be afraid? Though a host should encamp against us, our hearts shall not fear. Though war should rise against us, we remain confident in our God. Because God will never leave us or forsake us. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in our trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against us in judgment, God shall condemn. Do you know that you are unstoppable? God has a commission for your life, and you know the enemy cannot stop it. Have you ever thought that in your life? The Lord is with us as a mighty, terrible one. Whoa, that's sort of a nice feature. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Whatsoever we shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever we shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Since God is for us, who can be against us? This is called the almighty attitude. Do you think this way? Do you reason this way? Every single one of you that knows scripture knows that this is just straight out of scripture. This is the attitude of the Christian. Reasoning from this position of indomitable, unstoppable, immovable strength and authority. Set your phronail on things above, not on things of the earth. That's our Greek word in the beginning. That's attitude. So what is the commission? What is the command? You are to set your attitude higher. You see, you are a sheep and you are a little baby eaglet. However, he says, set your attitude up at mother's level if you're an eaglet. Set your attitude up at shepherd level if you're a sheep. Don't reason as just a sheep and look to the inventory of your own strength. Don't look at life through the lens of an eaglet and try and maintain your comforts. Think big. Think God thoughts. Heavenly perspective. The lens that enables you to live. Put on the almighty glasses. Who should be intimidating who? So we're talking about spiritual intimidation. Who should be intimidating who? You know what the enemy's afraid of? The church of Jesus Christ getting its game on. The enemy is scared. The enemy is the one who should be intimidated. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I know it looks like the book of Acts. I don't know what it's going to look like today. However, it's mandatory. First, we cannot be the cowards. First, we have to begin to reason from a position of strength and not a position of weakness. We must take on God's mentality. We must be clothed in God's position. We must allow the Almighty One Himself to dwell in us, to live and move and have His being within these bodies, where these hands begin to do the work of God. These eyes begin to look where God would look. These hearts begin to beat with God's burdens. These mouths begin to speak God's words. 
And these minds begin to think God thoughts. We are to set these minds in the heavenly realms and allow these minds to reason from a higher pitch, a higher vantage point, to begin to say, why would I fear that? No weapon fashioned against me shall prosper. And you find yourself, when the kings of this earth and the rulers of this earth are taking their stand against you, that you chuckle and you laugh and you hold them in derision and say, watch what God will do. You pull in Elisha and you look to the person next to you who's trembling and you say, what? God, open his eyes. Fear not. Don't you see it? There's a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. We're not the cowards. And in one word spoken, an entire army is blinded and led by the hand into the capital city of Israel. Whoa! Uh-huh. Christianity. The book of Philippians. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. <laughs> that you would have the same phrenail. What I'm going to say is, and this is the cheater's version of doing a biblical study, the book of Philippians, and I could say arguably, but with a very strong argument, you could make the statement that the book of Philippians is basically about having the phroneo of God, having the mind of Christ. And then it goes through the entire book and shows the mind of Christ in and through Paul's attitude. Paul is in prison while he's writing that book, and yet he rejoices. And there are those that are giving the gospel in spite of him, to spite him. And what does he do? He says, but I rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed. And then he's building up to chapter 2, which is the great chapter we started with. Remember the, the two issue where Philippians 2? That's Philippians. Where he says that you would have this mind in you that Christ had. Well, who else has that mind? Paul does. And the whole book of Philippians, he's appealing that they would have the same mind. That they would have this mind of Christ. They would have the phroneo of God, the almighty attitude. Please, Philippian church, please, that you would see things through this lens and not the lens of this earth. So Paul is making a case all throughout the book of Philippians. And let me make that case in a very minimalized way. I actually took out a few of the things just to make this as simple as possible. But fulfill you my joy, this is Paul speaking, that you be of the same for nail. Now what I did in these parentheses is I took the different terms that are used, like that you would be of the same mind, or that you would be like-minded. Okay, And I took that. It's basically saying that you would be of the same for nail. It says this over and over and over again. So what I did is to make that stand out for you, I put it in parentheses, and I made it big. Fulfill you my joy that you may be, that you be of the same for nail, the same attitude, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let the same for nail be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, have the same phrenail. And if anything you do, if, if in anything you do not have the same phrenail, God shall reveal even this unto you. If you don't have this attitude, this sermon might do a good job of revealing that. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us have the same phrenail. I beseech, and this is the final chapter, which I'm going to go through in just a second. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that, ha- that they have the same phrenail in the Lord. What is the conclusion of such an almighty attitude? Basking in the final chapter of Philippians. Paul builds this statement, 
and then he makes his case. You want to see where this leads. You want to see why I've been saying, have this mind, have this mind, have this mind, have this mind. Jesus had this mind, and where did he end up? At the right hand, with a heavenly vantage point. We are in him with a heavenly vantage point. We are able to see things through a higher lens because we're in him. So listen to the final chapter. I streamlined this so you can go back and read the full thing. But so, 4, chap- four verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice is to joyce over and over and over again. To repeat an action. And the action is joyce. To have joy. To literally spring forth as a fountain. Do it! Over, over, over. No matter what situation you're in. I'm in prison, guys, and I'm rejoicing. And I'm going to tell you again, rejoice. That's the message of Philippians. The mind of Christ is, hey, hey, don't get down in the dumps. Don't fear. Have this mind. Spring forth as a fountain. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. When you begin to live, could you imagine you're a little sheep and there's wolves there. And what what does another sheep say to you? Hey, don't fear. The Lord is at hand. The shepherd's right here. The shepherd's coming. Don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. This is the context for that statement. Be anxious for nothing. When we're talking about the almighty mind, what's it contradicting? It's contradicting the little eaglet mentality. It's contradicting the little sheep mentality. It says, but my comforts are not intact. I feel vulnerable. I feel weak. Why? Don't you know your position? Don't you know who watches over you? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Listen to this line. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Where are you to stick your mind? If you have the mind of Christ, what's it thinking on? This is what we're thinking about. The greatest threat on earth for darkness is light. When light turns on, do you know that darkness has no choice but to flee? What if the church is turned on? What if we actually become as we ought to be? What happens to darkness? It has to go into its crevices. May we live as the light in this world. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. What have we seen? What have we saw? What have we heard in Paul? I hear a song coming from the adjacent cell. I hear him saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And then I hear him saying, and again I say, what's he going to say? Rejoice! Boy, this is a guy of one message. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Paul, I'm in prison. And he's like in the other cell going, so am I. Don't you see how amazing this is? What's our attitude? What's our perspective? Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul's in prison when he's saying this. I've learned that no matter what circumstance I'm in, no matter what the situation, I've learned to be content. I know how to be abased, low, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Listen to this. 
This is what we'll finish with. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what's our conclusion in the book of Philippians? Have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Uh, By the way, guys, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what about the wolf pack? What about the temptations? What about the baits for fear? What about the rulers, the kings of this earth that are conspiring? I have a job to do on this earth. My job isn't to fixate on what the enemy is doing. It's to make my focus what God is doing. I focus on God and he'll carry me through. He always does. Our job is to believe. Our job isn't to take on the kings of this earth and the rulers and to have bouts with them. Our job is to believe. Our job isn't to walk out of the gates of Jerusalem and try and tackle 180,000 Syrians in our own strength. It's not by might nor by power. It's by his spirit, says the Lord. This battle was accomplished by Jesus. It was won. The enemy is defeated. You must know your position, and you must know your position of Christ in you. You must know that he's not going anywhere. He's the I am that he is, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And forever, by the way, includes today. It's not just some time back in the past, and now he's altered and become weak and grown a long white beard, and now he's all frail for our day and age. Oh, no. Same God. Same power. In fact, if anything, I'm expecting him to increase in the revelation of himself because the veil that separates earth from the heavenly realms is melting away and we will see more clearly in the days to come, not less clearly. And this is the day in which we live. This is the hour that we've been assigned. Let's live it right. Let's live it with gusto. Let's live it with clear faith, glasses on. What the word of God says, we simply believe it. It's right. God cannot lie. He has never lied. He is called faithful and true. It says the words of God are like silver, purified seven times. Every word is trustworthy. When he speaks, he means it. And we can trust it. And if we begin to live and reason with those glasses on, our lives will be unstoppable in this earth. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.